Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have that and D.O.G., the original gangster on the podcast. How would I describe him? I think he's a bit like the elder from the tribe. He's been a whistleblower for the parliament. He founded the People's Public Trust in 2010. And he's been teaching and mentoring for self-development and gender work for about 15 years. You kind of hit me at a special time because I just heard that my parents uh, got vaccinated with their first dose. And one of the reasons why they did it was like, I want to move on with my life. I feel like the opposition is not big enough. We want to go back to normal. So they didn't even do it because they think like it's good for their health or they want to save lives. It's basically, you know, they felt being taken hostage and they couldn't get out without them paying the price. Mm. So that's a bit the state that I talked to you right now. You also mentioned that your parents had Yeah, both of them. Yeah, my mother did it without telling me because she knew that I would have something to say about it. I found out from my sister after the fact. And my dad is a pretty switched on guy, I think, normally, mm. but he's in a risk category. He's over 17. He was getting a lot of hassle in his community, literally health professionals knocking on his door and phoning him, hounding him down to come and get it for their statistics. And I said to him, why did you do it, dad? And he said, well, you know, I feel fit, I feel healthy, I feel strong. So I thought, why not? I was like, Dad, they're the reasons not to. But I think he just, he was he was really feeling the pressure of the phone calls. Uh, he received one while he was visiting us. And he was a bit like, uh, 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 who are you? And uh, I'm in a bubble with my son. And okay, I'll see you when I get back. And they were like, okay, we'll call you in a few days. We've been around to your house. We've knocked on your door. So there was a lot of pressure. He was in a 70-year-old 70, 70 man really living on his own, quite vulnerable from the point of view of being preyed upon by health professionals who want statistics at the end of the day, rather than them having any long-term facts or data about what they're administering here, as you and I know. And yet, like you, to hear the stories of, I just want life to go back to normal, as if that was the only route, you know, it's a real ransom uh, that seems to be being offered to some people. And your parents sound like they perceived it as a ransom as well. Yeah, that's the crazy tragic, thing. He, tragic yeah, thing. He literally told me like, yeah, I know my immune system can handle this in my body, but now I'm a bit, you know, not so okay after taking this. So it's so surreal. He even admits exactly. it like, yeah. Yeah. I, we need to I, change the name of your podcast for this show. This is a rant for humanity. We are ranting for humanity today. You know, that's but, the thing. It's really, really significant. We are going for our species and for the well-being and and the free will of, of what you put in your body. This was the conversation I had with him. And listen, I respect everybody's choice. I'm extremely yeah. liberal for people that own yeah, self-ownership. Like it's a difference in like values, etc. But, you know, in the end, it's like an individual choice. But I look at it like you're making a choice for the future of humanity. So he is making the choice like, I want to go back to my vacation or drink something in the short term because that's more pleasurable. But yeah. you're silently building the future prison and a horrible future, which you will be living in for 10, 20 years. 
Yes. So what is then being able to go to a restaurant or on a vacation like six months earlier when the way you will be living life will never be like all the years you've been living and the quality of life is diminished. So I look at what kind of society are we creating and am I openly or silently approving of having society go this way? Yes, I think that's it. You're absolutely on it. That's exactly it. And that's the question I ask. It depends on what people think this is about. Is it about the bug or is it about something else? And it really does boil down to that for me, really, because mm -hmm. the statistics of the bug don't back up the interventions, as you and I mm -hmm. and many medical professionals well and truly know. But I have also met some people who, because of their lack of experience, their youth, their selective education, their selective exposure to life itself, mm -hmm. They look at graphs and they look at charts and they experience fear. And there was a, a graph that came out recently. I had a bit of an interesting, after I started talking about a solution for people who don't want an intervention, uh, which we'll talk about, I, I had a scientific friend come to me and say, oh, well, you know, I think it's irresponsible for you to, you know, kind of um, instill potential fear over what is essentially an effort to help humanity reduce suffering. And I resorted with, well, I think it's uh, you know irresponsible for you to tout absolute safety when you can't actually back that up. And I said, let's look at the graphs. So I got the graphs. Because I thought, he's a science guy, he's going to like the graphs. So I got the graphs out. And the graphs were, were for the estimated deaths in the last year based on half a decade, so zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 15, mm -hmm. all the way up to age 90, and the number, percentage of people who have died mm -hmm. with this COVID. And there's not a lot of red on that graph. It's tiny. It's nothing, 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 mm -hmm. tiny amount. And I was looking at this. I was saying, see, look at this. This doesn't water this intervention. And he said, oh, well, I think that graph backs up my position even more. And I paused and I was like, okay, let's unpack this because for me, this conversation is almost over because what we've established is we are coming from different values. And for me, as a species, for us to look at something that may take out one in a hundred of our most vulnerable, I consider that an acceptable risk for our species. And you're telling me you don't consider that an acceptable risk. Can I just check out what your demographic in the human spectrum is? And it turns out the person had no children but was very concerned about his elderly parents. And I was like, ah, so really what I think we're getting at here is that you are coming from a position over fear for your parents and your grandparents, but you're not really thinking about the future generations really, mm -hmm. uh, which is why you're happy to have healthy people and healthy young people be administered an experimental treatment in the that was granted an emergency license for an experiment. You're happy to let a healthy, wild population have that because of your fear of the loss of your parents, basically, at the end of the day. And I was speaking to some medical professionals about this who are, and they are an uproar and upset about this as well, because the, the position of these particular medical professionals was you don't administer an, ex, an experimental treatment to healthy people. Experimental treatments are reserved for the ones that are most at risk and most likely to die because they are the ones in the position of gambling and they may be willing to gamble healthy people have no reason to be invited to gamble. And the example that was given was experimental cancer treatments. So there have been experimental cancer treatments over the years. 
And what they do is they offer them to the ones that have got like six months to live, a year to live, to be like, well, look, is this going to work? We don't actually know. The cost benefit analysis of like the benefits from them gaining are like so big that you're like, you know, like it's worth the risk for those. It's worth you risking unknown downstream side effects. Is it worth a healthy population experiencing potentially unknown downstream side effects from experimental treatment? This to me is is where some of this conversation rests on in terms of why I've adopted the position I've adopted to try to protect part of the gene pool from a massive experiment. And the example that I use is thalidomide. So thalidomide was offered as a treatment and on the labels it said completely safe for pregnant women. And it was administered as a, a morning sickness treatment for pregnant women. And many of these women started giving birth to horrifically disfigured children with no limbs. And the doctors were still in denial that their drug caused it. They were still saying, no, it's not our treatment. And it took five years to prove that thalidomide caused horrific disfigurement. And it's considered a tragedy, and even medically. And it is considered, in fact, some, some new medical measures were introduced as a result of thalidomide. But the key point here is those doctors believed their conviction of absolute safety, and they were wrong. And what we are dealing with is people who are coming from a position of absolute certainty, so they claim, when they literally cannot know You cannot know. And then we have unqualified people, politicians, media professionals, completely unmedically qualified, risk assessment, completely unqualified, no knowledge of, you know, mass population kind of demographic concerns and issues that affect the the, the health and well-being of a large population. These people are coming on their screens and touting absolute safety and, and, and calling out doubts as being unfounded when they literally can not know because it's never been around long enough. And what I am saying is, what we are talking about here is potentially giving every woman and every man something like thalidomide. And if we had given every pregnant woman thalidomide, our species would have been wiped out. We would have been wiped out as a species. So this is why my position, as you know, and maybe the others don't know, is that for me, we're being told to trust the science. We're being told to believe the scientists believe the politicians, believe their conviction and their alleged morality and their strong moral imperative and their strong moral intent. Not that any of them are profiting out of this. I mean, how dare any of us suggest that somebody might be making money out of this, making everybody their customer. A well population, the medical industry suddenly being able to sell their products, not just to the sick, but to the healthy. This is a massive, massive issue. And for me, the words of belief and trust are the words of religion, not science. Science proves itself. Religion asks for belief. Religion asks for trust. Science proves itself. I don't need to believe or trust my paracetamol to know that it's going to get rid of my headache or make my fingers stop hurting. Proven, it works. I don't need to trust or believe my mobile phone to know that if I pick it up and make a call, the call is going to connect because the science has proven itself. We are not in a situation where this science has proven itself and these people are absolutely lying, not perhaps intentionally in the same way as those doctors who believed in thalidomide were lying. They weren't lying about their intent and their belief. They were lying because they could not know the long-term consequences because it literally didn't exist yet. 
And that's my premise where for me, you want to talk science, you want to invite me into science. Well, unless you've got a control group, it's not science. Unless you have a control group for any experiment to compare it against, it's not science. So I am pressing for a formal control group in every Western nation that is talking about giving this experimental shot to every single person in their population. I am saying this is not science. This is mass medication of an experimental substance that has the potential to have catastrophic downstream genetic and psychological effects that we can't know about at the moment because the data isn't in. A control group would afford us both the people who are conscientious observers and would like to sit on the fence to see the treatment prove itself. These people are not anti-treatment or anti-vaccination. They are pro-safety and uh, pro Pro kind of uh, discernment. Pro sanctity of the body and pro like mm. using the way Excellent. that your uniquely bodily gives like a kind of answer. Yeah. Like my my thesis in sociology was on the risk perception of electromagnetic radiation back then, like 15 years ago. Mm. And something that was there was important was the cautionary principle. But when we look at these pharmaceutical solutions or technological solutions, it's like, no, 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 no cautionary principles. You know, we don't have to think like long term. But I see also a weird kind of thing that with climate change. No, 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 no. We have to act now because the long term consequences could be like devastating. Yeah. So it's kind of like cherry picking where they use it and they don't yes. use it. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's what, to me, fosters distrust. I feel distrust when I see that kind of selective use of assessment of long-term effects and consequences. And this kind of running headlong over a cliff in the belief that this is absolutely safe when it can't be proven is crazy. And you're right, we have, we have here, because we could link with this scientific friend of mine, I said, well, the conversation's over because we have different value metrics. You believe that's an acceptable risk? I don't, you know, and that, that's the end of story. So then his second argument then is, well, I want you to be involved in taking care of other people. Then you should be taking the shot. And this is when I'm like, well, Nuremberg, Nuremberg all the way. Nuremberg says I get to choose because of my right of bodily sanctity over what I eat and what I let into my system. The Nuremberg trials, which were because of people being experimented on against their will, says I get to choose. And a control group allows those people to have their right to choose, but it still be part of the science. And this is still part. They're not anti anything. It's pro science. I tell you what, I'm going to be in the control group, you know, and because of things like thalidomide and DDT taking so long, I think we should have a control group for 15 or 30 years in each country for this kind of treatment because it's so novel. It's so unknown. And in a way, it is. It preserves bodily sanctity. It preserves the fact that no one can have absolute certainty beforehand. And it upholds the principles of the Nuremberg trials, which should be a win-win for everyone. Because even the ones who are advocating vaccinating everyone know you can't vaccinate the whole population. And they're looking for a figure of 70 or 80 percent. Well, you know, let's make the rest a control group. You know, let's just say, and luckily enough, just like they were looking for volunteers to take the shot, we've got enough volunteers who don't want the shot because it's an experiment and they want to see whether it's effective or not. It seems that we have a ready-made group of mixed demographics who would like to be part of a control group. So I see it as a win-win situation for science, for the treatment, uh, for everyone, except perhaps the salespeople. 
this is kind of the stage that I see sometimes when it comes to morality and also when it comes to the science. Normally, there's always like doubt and we look at some things we believed in and then it like changes. But now we see the fact checking or ideology. This is right. This is hate speech. This is what you can't see. This is what you can't see. This is science. This is completely safe. This is not safe. It's like this black and white thinking of then like playing God and saying, we've reached yes. the end, the pinnacle, and yes. you know everything yes. is clear right now. Like, And you know what I think is really funny about these people? These are the people that claim to uphold non-binary worldview. You know, they try, <laughs> these are the people that claim to have a non-binary worldview. And it's like, you're seeming pretty binary to me right now. This is pretty either or. I'm a bit confused about, you know, again, your selective application of non-binary metrics. <laughs> because you're absolutely right. It just is not this black and white. And my first video on the subject of a control group being science got taken down by YouTube under the premise that, and I got a strike on my channel, because apparently you are not allowed a video on that platform that questions vaccine safety. Now, for anyone out there, the UK government, not the most credible government in the world, mm -hmm. but certainly not a, a, you know, a despot regime by sort of like Pol Pot standards or Mugabe or something like that, relatively credible and respected in authority. They have a website page for vaccine damage injuries. And it's just, it's just gov.uk vaccine damage payment. And in there, there is a set list of things to say if you are horrifically disfigured or, you know, lifelong impaired, basically injured by a vaccine, then there is a payment you can have for the care you're going to have to receive possibly for the rest of your life as a result of being injured by the shot. If the UK government has that page, how can platforms like YouTube, Facebook, or even media platforms claim that you can't question vaccine safety. It's utterly irresponsible in a criminal way for them not to allow free and open dialogue around uh, past records of vaccine providers and the side effects, because it is well known that for every prescribed drug out there, there are side effects. It's well known. I mean, there's no drugs without side effects. And if it's it safe, depends. how come you can't sue these vaccine companies or pharma companies because they're not liable to be sued? Like, how can it be both? Like, yeah, it's totally safe, but if there's a problem, you can't sue us. Yeah. Can you explain any company where you would have this? Like, even for those little parts, you know, when a, yeah. when a child eats it and it, you know, suffocates on it, they can sue them or they have to go all these regulations. Yeah. But when it's this on such a massive scale, like, no, you know, like, yeah, immunity, you know? Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that is a, that's a, that's a crime as far as I'm concerned. That's a breach of trust of the politicians that have granted that uh, immunity to those companies. And frankly, I would say that every one of those politicians in every country that has allowed those organizations to be allowed immunity over this treatment have engaged in a criminally irresponsible act because then these vaccine manufacturers have no risk about what they put into their substance. It doesn't matter to them. They really, it doesn't make any difference as to whether it goes wrong or it goes right or whether there's catastrophic side effects or not. I can explain a bit like how it works according to me. Like, let's say, and people can always like correct me about this. Like, let's say you have a castle and you get attacked. The traditional vaccines is you have like a little army that comes towards the, ta uh, the castle. You can defeat them. You get like intel, like this is how they work. This is how we can defeat them. And the next time they come, you know, we can fight them off because you got all the intel. 
Yeah. What the new ones are, like a messenger RNA, there's like a guy with a scroll coming. Guys, there's someone who looks like this. They would probably do this. And they immediately go to the weapon factory and then they start like developing it. And then as soon as somebody comes there who looks like the enemy, they immediately roll out the defenses, you know, and then just start shooting it. But what if the information that you got from that messenger is outdated, you know, or it would fuck up your own defense systems, that it turns against the castle or that enemy is already like able to overrun all your defenses because you just jumped shift of your natural defenses and you immediately go to the weapon factory and then it has the wrong information by that messenger who gave the outdated or wrong information. Now, that backs up the information that I've received on this. And I've received it. I mean, I believe this information has come from vaccine professionals. This has come from an ex-VP of Pfizer. It's come from an ex-VP of another very credible vaccine manufacturer and researcher. So let's just be clear that this, you know, while you and I are, because people might call us out for not being vaccine experts, but my understanding Mm -hmm. is that this interpretation that you've just painted of how the mRNA works, that picture was painted by vaccine professionals who are trying to be discredited by the mainstream media who are not vaccine professionals. And this kind of shutting down of credible counterpoints to point to a binary kind of position also fosters to me distrust as to the genuine ethics, morality and purpose of all of this. And that makes it even more questionable as to whether I should take a treatment or not and for anybody else to be even, find it even more questionable. Because, let's say it would affect yeah. the autoimmune system or let's say it overshoots or etc. Let's say, I'm not saying it is, I'm, I'm painting the picture. What will people say? We didn't know. We haven't das nicht gewusst. Is that, mm. is that the story going to be? No, we chose to mm. ignore the other things because we, we, we choose complete certainty or short-term gain, you know, and then we just think like it's going to be fine. What if you just inoculated the entire planet with irreversible damage and with no yeah. way of going back? Like, what the hell are you going to do then at that point? Are you excluding completely that viruses don't adapt and then you bypass the immune system or the natural way to develop antibodies? You immediately let them start shooting off a defense don't you see anything that could go wrong there with mutations or the body not having like an adapted response to the threat? Well, they do. I mean, it actually says in some of the paperwork that it's expected that if you catch it, you will get it worse. It will be worse, which is so measles is a good example of this. So when people are talking about that and, and they're touting the measles vaccine, they often can't quote some of the worst side effects of getting measles, you know, blindness and deafness and stuff like that. I can't remember them, but really horrific lifelong things. It turns out that those worst side effects only happen to the ones who have been vaccinated who then also get measles. You know, they're the ones who get it worse. The, va- the ones who are vaccinated for the treatment have a worse reaction when they catch the wild virus. And it says in the paperwork that I've seen that the same is true for this. So in the UK government, prediction document for the next wave of this alleged virus of COVID, you know, the seasonal flu, what they're saying is that they expect 60 to 70% of hospitalizations and deaths to be with people who have had two shots of the vaccine. 60 to 70% of hospitalizations and deaths will be from people who have had two shots. And to me, it's like, well, you're not really selling it then, are you? If over half the people, possibly almost three quarters of the people who are going to be hospitalized and died from catching COVID are going to be the ones who have had two shots, what's the benefit of having your shot? 
you've just eliminated any potential benefit there. And this document is on the government's website and it's been getting circulated and people are trying to discredit it as a conspiracy document, despite the fact it is on the government's own website. And it just shows the level of brainwashing mm -hmm. and kind of abdication of responsibility and accountability for thinking and analysis that people have handed over literally to a politician on the podium. And unless it comes from the politician on the podium or the, the news anchor that they prefer, then it's not deemed to be true, regardless of what university it's come from, which study house, how credible they are, how long they were a VP of Pfizer, how many vaccines they worked on and how many companies they founded that sell vaccines. All of that credibility gets thrown out of the window for the glory and the elevation of the man on the screen on the podium with the green and white tape. Yeah. If he doesn't say it, then it's not true. And I'm only going to stop wearing my mask and I'm only going to stop, you know, getting close to people when the man on the podium says so, which is basically, there's a really interesting article that addresses why this is. And this is because these are people who are intelligent, educated people. And it's like, why can I not present you with real credible data from factual, credible authorities and sources and you literally won't even look? You literally, we can't even have the conversation. And I, the research on it that I've come across talks about two angles to this. One is called the amygdala response, which is that when a person's entire status and sort of like group affiliation rests on them identifying with a particular piece of data, if there's a particular piece of data that would possibly question their welcome into their group that they depend on, they literally cannot even look. The fear of group rejection is so great that they literally cannot engage their thinking faculties. The other angle that I saw come at it, which is really similar, but it talks about child development and individuality. And basically, it says in child development, when a child is in an overwhelming situation where they cannot appraise the parameters involved and they cannot really understand what's going on. They just do what mom and dad do. Uh, where's mom? Where's dad? I'm with them. I'm with them. And then they get a little bit lost in the crowd. Where's mom and dad? I'm with mom and dad. You know, I don't know what's going on here. I'm with mom and dad. Because they literally are too, they literally don't trust their own analysis or their own kind of understanding of the world to be able to assess the situation. That's what a child does. There seems to be an element of that aspect of child psychology at play in these people where the politician on the podium is mom or dad. And they literally will own it. So even when they're mingling in the crowd and here's a professor, here's a VP of Pfizer, here's a vaccine expert. No, no, no. I'm with mom and dad. Where's mom and dad? I can't listen to this. I need mom and dad. No, 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 la, 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 mum and dad. And then when the podium speaks, ah, yeah, see what he said. I'm yeah, with I, them. I talked about this with John, and I, I call it like the archetype that I also see in the Matrix, where you see a grown person connected to the Matrix with this kind of, you know, yeah. placenta or umbilical cord yeah. plugged yeah. into their head, feeding off that grown, mature human being and keeping him or her in an infantile state. It's sucking yes. personal responsibility away from that mature human being. Keep him trapped within that matrix, that matrix yeah. matrix, like that womb, toxic womb. Yes. It yes. weaves that world in the womb and it keeps the person immature, irresilient, yes. irresponsible, yes. and it sucks the fundamental freedoms away from them. And then, yes. you know, delegates them to that 
on the surface benevolent caretaker, yeah. but actually like the wicked witch, you know, that yes. sucks away and gets energy yeah. and weaves that false yes. reality to keep that mature yes. person trapped, the taking the away the witch. power. Yeah. yeah, the Wicked Witch archetype is perfect here because it is the beatific, beautiful, bountiful queen to everyone else, polishing her poison apples behind the scenes. You know, that really is a good image of, I think, what we're dealing with here to some extent or another. But another metaphor for people who maybe don't know the Matrix is the Borg in Star Trek. Yeah. This is really like the Borg as well, you know. It really is like you think you're dealing with your parent and then or your friend, and then you hit one of the subjects and, you know, all of a sudden the Borg engages. No, resistance is futile. You cannot do this. And I see the same thing with my dad, like resistance is futile. I'm like, dude, like you don't condone this, but you have done zero resistance. You haven't done anything to say no. You haven't spoken out. You haven't protested. And then you're like, yeah, but there's so little people. Yeah, but the biggest way how people give their power away is thinking that they don't have any. You haven't even done anything to change it. You just said like, okay, yeah, it's useless. And I'm like, you haven't even put up one fight, one little resistance. You don't need 50%. You don't even need the majority. You just need the people who say like, no. So this acquiescence and not standing up. That really disappointed me because my dad is like, you know, a guy with balls, you know, I normally like, he doesn't take any shit, but I'm like, yeah, he, he, he finds like resistance is futile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And the thing here as well is it's kind of like a selective program. This is where the Matrix, my favorite character in the Matrix is Agent Smith for this reason. Because what you have is a person who's sitting there normally, you're having a conversation, but you say the wrong trigger word and all of a sudden they morph. You've got Agent Smith before you. Oh, you said you said you don't want the shot. You said you don't want to wear a mask. Oh, the, the agent is here representing the state. The agent of state is here. And this is... So, uh, you, you know, b- b- people who have known my work for a while will know that I've been involved in the notion of sovereignty for, for over 10 years now. And what I mean by sovereignty is just individuality and the fact that any country or any nation is made up of upstanding individuals who are innovators, producers, creators who work in collaboration with each other to form a society or a state, you know, our culture. But it's like our forefathers did such a good job of creating such a comfortable and mm. easy society to live in despite the sort of social politics but really in terms of existential threats and you know having to worry about your water and your food and your and your and your heating and your shelter all that's been taken care of to the point that they've managed to comfortably avoid taking responsibility for things and in a way they've never really had to develop that that innovative kind of challenge response that, that develops the, the healthy individual. They've never really been tested in themselves by themselves to kind of, or, or having tested themselves in terms of self-initiation, self-challenge, pushing oneself up against the unknown and doing new things to develop, develop character and individuality. They've never done that. And I think this is what we're, what we're really shining out now is a real separation of the ones who believe in and, and promote the power of the individual and how culture has always been built on the innovation of individuals. And it's been replaced by a collective that seems to believe that passive collectiveness or passive consensus is somehow a healthy strategy or one that is uh, effective. And so what we're seeing in these people that we thought were individual, like, so I'd be with people who I thought were credible thinking individuals. Mm. And I thought they were, I thought they were about, 
individual autonomy. It's like, look, we all dress different. We all look different. We have different skills and all the rest. We're individuals. And therefore, what we do is we pool our individual perspectives and we pool our individual skills and we're able to create something greater. That's real diversity, not the homogenous blob of sameness that we're getting presented as being a sort of individual these days, when actually what it is is someone who does what the state says, someone who does what the media says, and uh, that's actually a collective. And so what's really being separated here, I think, is is collectivists and individualists, and the individuals are championing freedom of choice, and the collectivists are seeking to remove choice, and that is dangerous. That is criminal. It's like to remove the freedom of choice is imprisonment and slavery. And these people are not, I think, aware of the level of fascism that is in their position. This is exactly the guise yeah. of care. This is what illusion I'm, of care. Exactly. It's it's a prison being presented as a care hospital. And then they yes. say, like, look at these people outside who are criminals, they want freedom. Like, you're in the prison. The criminals are in the prison. The warden of the prisoners. No, no, come here because we're in this safe hospital that protects us from those bad criminals who want freedom. Again, a complete inversion. Normally the criminals yes. are in the, you know, the prison, you know, and the free people are, you know, like they're outside being safe from yes. those people in prison. Now it's being presented at the best place here, the most freedom you have in prison here. And those criminals are outside, roaming outside of the prison. It's, it's, it, it really is crazy for me to see like what's going on. For me, the bigger perspective is this. And that's the bigger picture for me. I'm not going to make any definitive statement about the vaccine. I'm not completely yeah. anti-vaccine, et cetera. You yeah. know, I'm also with the perspective of the control group and having like certainty. I see what this is. This is a Trojan horse to have something. Now it's a physical the passport with you that has data that is collected and then you have to show it to be able to be allowed certain freedoms. This is just a paper with just one thing on it with the vaccine and you have to show it. More and more data will be on yeah. this thing. You have to send it to a central government. It will be tracked and based on that, you will be allowed to go somewhere. So that will become about how polluting you are. What do you say? Yeah. Uh, how much money do you make? How healthy you are? What do you think? You know, and more and more will be on this. Now it's a passport. It will be a chip or a data transfer thing that will become a permanent part of your life and existence. And you will be on probation based yeah. on this data that is constantly centrally collected, checked, yeah. and being used to steer behavior, control behavior, limit behavior, yeah. and freedoms. This yeah. is what's happening. This is yeah. the bigger picture that people yeah. are not seeing that's Absolutely. being smuggled in. Yeah, it's already in place in China. And then we've got Bill Gates turning around and saying, oh, well, the reason China was able to get on top of COVID so quickly is because they were quite happy to overturn individual liberties and rights. Maybe we should learn something from China. It's like, Bill, anyone advocating learning from a despotic human re regime with some of the worst human rights records in the world needs to check himself before he opens his mouth. You know, this guy needs to check himself. And it, the fact that he thinks that's a good idea and, in fact, is behind things like the vaccine passport is something that we should be very concerned about because you're right, it is about the social credit system coming in. And this goes, I mean, we're a bit downstream, I think, from what this is really about. If we mm -hmm. look back to a few years ago and we see what people were talking about, you mentioned the green thing, you know, we had the green thing going on and everyone's saying, we've got 10 years, we need to cut travel by 90%. There's too many of us. We need to cut the population by a huge amount. Now, if, if those were the goals, let's see what happened with a lockdown. 
95% of travel eliminated overnight, essential only, nothing social. Goal number one achieved. Second thing, a mask and two meters of distance. Really interestingly, because I do, you know, you, you know, my work is about relationship and connection and overcoming the problems of connection and having intimacy and, and communicating and sexuality and embodied sexuality. And it's within two meters that you start to feel somebody. Somebody having a rant three meters away from you or having a meltdown is a curiosity. Oh, what's going on over there? Someone within two meters, you feel it. You feel it. From here down, there down is how you can tell how I'm feeling. You can tell whether I'm trying to flash a smile across the room at you or not. Now, I've seen people learning to like move their eyes for under a mask to try and show they're smiling because people can't see they're smiling otherwise. But this means that the things you would use to connect for the purpose of intimacy over a long distance has been removed from you. The ability to come close enough so we can feel each other and feel the chemistry, the ability to flash a big wide smile of greeting and warmth and humanity to let somebody know you're interested in seeking to connect. Eliminated. You had a curfew. You stopped people going out. I'm not interested in the death figures for the last year. I'm interested in the birth figures. I'm interested in the births because, strictly speaking, with lockdowns being what they were, I would hope that we're seeing an increase in population. But when you look at the statistics of, I can't remember the name of the company, but there was a company that was giving statistical projections for 2025. And for some reason, this is a well-respected company. They do this all the time. For some reason, all the Western popula- all the Western nations, all of them were looking at a 50% plus drop in population by 2025. Now, 50% is huge. I mean, that is drop off a cliff levels. That's like you couldn't line up that number of people and shoot. But them look in at that these height. things: people are being presented as parasites. We've we've seen this yes. with the climate change yes, thing. Absolutely, the Earth is overpopulated. What was yes. the biggest movie? The Avengers. What did Thanos yes. do? Thanos map kill half of the yes. people. What did a lot of people say? Yeah, I kind of can get Thanos, you know, to remove like half of the people. So no, what kind yeah. of image are we creating here? Totally. We're creating an image, and with the COVID totally. also, people as virus spreaders, as like parasites. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Dirty humans, you dirty humans. And what people are doing is they're being presented the pictures of busy cities and not the pictures of the vast empty spaces that are on this planet. And it is a, it's, it's really a form of ideological natural selection. I've seen people, young people saying, oh, the greenest thing you can do for the planet is not have a child. It's like, well, if you speak to your ancestors, they would be in absolute apoplexy. They would be in despair that one of their offspring has decided that their genetic uniqueness, their resilience, their capacity and effort is worthless and worth chucking in the bin because somebody in Africa is having lots of kids, so I shouldn't. And it's like that is that is a level of genetic selection that is you're, you're basically exiting the gene pool for your entire ancestral line. And you might think that's some kind of moral or ethical thing, but there's a whole bunch of people laughing at you for it. The ones that want to be left with all the resource on the planet, they're laughing at you for that decision, for buying into that. And your ancestors are sobbing in their graves. Not everybody needs to have children. That's not the point here. The point is when you buy these ideological notions to refuse such a thing before you've been presented with another human being that might be attractive enough that you might consider that in the first place. You know, but I also see the same people who advocate save all lives, all lives matter, or the same people who are saying we're too much people, we're polluting the planet, we should reduce the amount of people on the population. You know, So they want to save lives, but in a way they don't want more lives. So, okay, there seems to be wanting both. 
this is exactly it's like whoa what do you mean here exactly it's like oh so you want to like prolong you want it you want it basically it's fear of death it's fear of death and fear of the naturalness of death and people who just want to cling on right at the very end instead of finding their place in the wheel of life you know and knowing that you know what also worries me because i want to connect it with what you said before what is one of the most basic anxiety provoking things or things that cause a lot of mental disorders to not be accepted for who you are to not yeah. feel part of the tribe, to not be able to become intimate and connect with people. What has happened on a worldwide level right now? I'm not okay as I am. I, I, I'm only okay when I fulfill certain rules. I can't connect with people. So a lot of psychopaths, a lot of mental disorders, they come from people not being connected to themselves, not feeling okay, not fitting in. This is, seems to be like the basic neurotic, anxious disorder, fundamental state of life of everyone. Like, I'm not okay. I'm a virus spreader. I start to stay away from people. I don't fit in. I only have my freedoms unconditionally. Maybe what I'm saying is racist, is sexist, etc. So you're always on probation. So that gives all that anxiety of like I'm seems to not do enough, not be enough, yeah. not say enough, you know. Yeah, yeah. But this is this is again because you're talking about people who already haven't accepted themselves, and so they're desperate to be accepted. And so they're then following these rules and trying to remember all the rules they have to follow because they're just so desperate to feel worthwhile and valuable in themselves. I mean, I was watching, I was really watching people walking around, the ones who are in the car by themselves in their mask or in the countryside walking along with a mask on. And I'm just trying to get into the head. And I think I came to something about it. And again, it takes me back to that child psychology, even if it's in an adult form that it's like they want to send out the message that it's not me. You know, it's not me. It's not me. I'm obeying the rules. It's not me. I'm not spreading. It's not me. It's not because of me. You have to keep going. Because I can't find any other reason as to why somebody would do that when you're by yourself in your own vehicle or walking along in nature. Why would you do it unless you were trying to send a signal to somebody? And what's the signal you're sending? that you're obedient, that you're doing what you're told, that it's not you that it's getting worse for. Now, what I have noticed is that, so, you you know, I'm, I'm not a mask wearer. I, um, I have a scarf for places where they really want to dig their heels in. Mm-hmm. And so I'll just put a scarf up. And otherwise, you know, I'll have a human encounter and I'll be careful about what I'm doing with my breath, basically. Yeah. But what's fascinating is, because I, I wore my scarf over winter to be to just really for other people at ease, but I used it as an opportunity to, to really spot what was happening. Now, I did, the, I did the march in London. For the march, it was a no, mar- no mask march. So obviously, I traveled there without my mask. And what I noticed was the change in recent months. So over the winter months, I used my scarf for convenience. I stripped the scarf off as the weather was getting better. And people were doing this to me on the tube. Well, he's moving sideways, and by in the, the way, street, the podcast, yeah. In the street, you know. And then I found the other day, I had my scarf on, and I was traveling, and even with my scarf on, there was somebody who went to the person behind them with their masks on to stay back from me because I was just scarfed and not actually masked. This kind of aversion... This kind of overreaction is testimony, I think, to the level of uh, not just the unfounded fear, but the actual brainwashing, you know, the actual yeah. programming of people who, who are, who are um, unable to assess what's before them. There's a really interesting thing here, actually, a really interesting point on when water was made an object of fear in airports. 
So we had one incident that didn't even happen. The bomb didn't even go off, but there was allegedly some liquid explosive that meant that all of a sudden the safest and most innocuous thing in the world, a bottle or a glass of water, was an object of terror. Should you cross this line with an open bottle, open or closed, doesn't matter if it's closed, you can't, that's got to go in the bin. What about if I open it and drink some? Is that okay? No, it's still got to go in the bin. What, even if I drink it? Even if you drink it, it's got to go in the bin. No water past this line. If you want to buy water after here, you have to buy our expensive water. And, oh, by the way, any cosmetics you've got, stick them in this bag that costs 50 pence. So what was happening was the most everyday things in the world, cosmetics and water, were made an object of fear with a new tax attached. Now, that's the visible everyday water. There's nothing safer than water, nothing more innocuous. Obviously, if you're in, if you're in the Amazon, then maybe you're not going to drink the water. It's maybe not so safe there. But in general, in the Western world, if you get water from a tap, it's generally safe to drink. And it's everyday. You buy water in a bottle, guaranteed it's safe to drink. Now, what we're now talking about is the unseen everyday. So humans have lived with the common cold and influenza and other bugs since the beginning of humanity, forever. We've lived yeah. with them as unseen potential threats, mm -hmm. but they're unseen, they're invisible. But what's now happened is the level of fear of the unseen every day has been elevated massively. And now this is a program that can be rinsed and repeated forever. Looking at this, we also have the data of Sweden, Florida, Texas, etc. And I'm just there trying to have my common sense like, have you seen this? Yeah, nothing abnormal. Yeah, but these people, are, oh yeah, deep people. Yeah, yeah, that's a part of life. It's a bit of a pity, yeah, nothing abnormal. It's a bit of a pity, yeah, it's a, that, that that happens. But yeah, that's a part of life. Oh my God, this, like, yeah, yeah. You have to be careful with this, yeah. Especially people with the less lifestyle, they're more prone. Like, you know, sad that it happens, but it, I'm not like thrown like, oh my God, that's abnormal. I see nothing abnormal going on. Absolutely yeah. nothing. I see yeah. measure being taken that they don't even test if it has an effect or not. You have these big rallies and it's not like a spike in infections or deaths, et cetera. Yes. So I'm looking at everything like, yeah, maybe a little bit more serious, but yeah, nothing abnormal. So huh? why are we acting this way when there's literally no vector at all to seriously exactly. change things? Because nothing condones this. Nothing's like, it's a pity, yeah, but I'm not, whoa. I knew older people and more vulnerable yeah. people with underlying illnesses die. Like, I'm not yes. shocked. It's still a pity, but I'm not shocked. Yes. Like, you're not overwhelming me with new data. I knew this. You don't want to look yes. at this and present this every day, what they're yeah. doing right now in the media. But I knew like, yeah, that can happen. It's a bit horrible. But yeah, some people yeah. die in traffic. Be safe, et cetera, you know. But yeah, sometimes that happens. So I see nothing abnormal that warrants this. Yes, this is a really good point. This takes me on to basically artificial intelligence which is people that look intelligent and sound intelligent, but they're actually not. Because what you're speaking from is living intelligence. <laughs> you're speaking from a living intelligence, which accesses all the variables. It accesses it on, says, hey, yeah, okay, and also, sorry to interrupt you, just yeah, one point. Uh, that is common sense. I sense it. So that means like I look for evidence in my surroundings. If yes. people would constantly be dying, if I were not a yes. people, I get the feedback from the study. Like, yes, it's yes. true. But now That's it's it. almost like I compared it. Like everybody is saying there's like Bigfoot and he's eating people and people are dying by the thousands and I'm going out and I haven't seen one Bigfoot or one bear in a whole year. Yeah. So yeah, then I'm yeah, checking yeah. like, okay, am I just crazy or what because it's not showing up in my reality how can yes. it be so serious so sorry to yes. interrupt you but that's also no no you're right that's, exactly, common you're, sense. That's, yeah. that's living intelligence that is basically saying okay here's one data set here's my lived experience here's you know you don't have the newspaper articles with all the 
the undertaker saying, we're so busy. We've never been this busy in 20 years. We've got piles of dead people. We're having to do mass graves. Not one undertaker saying they're overwhelmed. None. Mm-hmm. Not one interview with any coffin carrier saying, oh, my arms are aching from all the coffins I've had to carry because of all the COVID deaths. None. None. And living intelligence looks around like that saying, yeah. So you're saying it's a form of common sense, which is to the animal human who's on the earth, it's common. But what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with what I call techno-humans. And they are, and let's remember, Bill Gates is one of the first techno-humans, which is the prize technological answers and solutions rather than natural ones. They favor them. They want them first. And what you find is most of these people spend more time in front of a screen than they have in the real world. I mean, let's face it, Bill Gates is the kind of guy who, if he were at school, he would have been the geek at the back. He was unlikely to be the heart of the social hub at school. Highly unlikely. A lot of these techno-humans, they spend more time being excited by the output from their computers than by their interaction with the world and with other people. They are programming. They are engineers who design things to program. This is such a weird step to go from programming objects to programming people like objects. Exactly. (laughs) You know, there's a video four years ago from Microsoft's research team called DNA Programming. It's worth a watch. It's about four minutes long. You can just look up Microsoft Research DNA Programming. Four years ago, there's these young scientists, young men who are almost cheekily excited about what they're sharing. They're a bit like, Hmm. well, we found, you know, we can kind of program DNA a bit like a computer. And the way they're doing it is a bit like naughty boys that have found themselves in God's toolbox, you know, Mm -hmm. and just using that language of a creator. But whether you believe in that or not, doesn't matter. The point being is the blind watchmaker. Yes, exactly. And what would you? Yeah, the blind watchmaker. Yeah, the blind (laughs) watchmaker. But we realize that this is the programming thing that we can program. And so, well, who built the operating system that the program is operating on that you're tinkering with? Mm-hmm. It arrived randomly, did it? That's incredible. But this, but this point, now what, what got me was these guys were computer engineers, software engineers. They, I have no notion of their morality, of their understanding of ethics, of their exposure to other humans that they might have empathy or consideration of long-term consequence or anything. They just discovered they could program DNA like a computer and they were quietly excited about it. That was four years ago, Microsoft team, you know, and you know, it's the same for up the stream. I can't imagine Bill's any different. It's something he gets excited about. And in fact, he's even got excited about a number of technological innovations that he thinks will just sort out X, Y, or Z. And I think, what do you actually know about any of these things? You're a guy that built and sells software and computers. What do you know about any of this? It's it's kind of like transposed authority that doesn't stand. So just because he was an authority in one thing, it doesn't mean he's an authority in another. And yet some people are allowing, allowing that transposition to take place when it's not real. And you're right. There's a really interesting thing about computers, because this is why I think we're dealing with an artificial intelligence here, as in, in humans. Even Boris Johnson and his advisors, I'm saying, are exhibiting signs of artificial intelligence. Well, this is the thing. Brain. Yeah, this is the thing let that just, I've been... And, and yeah, I'm not, he, let me just sum up what I mean by that point, which is, so a computer will output data only based on what you put into it. 
It cannot mm. give you anything else. It can't read anything else except what you put in. So if you put in a limited data set, it's only give you, going to give you back out a limited output based on it. So really what should be happening is humans tell computers what to do. Human tells a computer what to do. When computers start telling humans what to do and humans start obeying them based on the limited data that went in and then the even more limited output from that data set and humans start obeying a computer based on a graph, that is artificial intelligence. You know, Not unless it's backed up by the common sense of, I see a stack of bodies, I see undertakers overwhelmed, I see despair in the streets, and I see a graph that tells me based on the data that we put in, if we behave like this, those bodies will reduce. Great, I'm all for doing that. But when you've only got the singular piece of data from the computer to act on, and you're asking billions of humans to do it, and I'll tell you, this is, this is perhaps the most bizarre thing I've got to share here. And it's when all this started. And I think this is a big deal. A lot of people dismiss it. But this happened, and there was something very, very special that happened here before the lockdowns happened in Europe. I think there's a link here. Others may not. But, you know, this is my proper, my proper, this is an engineered thing going on. And last year's budget in the UK, the Chancellor is very famous for coming out with a big red bag. And he holds up a red bag and he did, walks, to, walks to Parliament, walks to the number 10 Downing Street with his budget. So he comes out, he hands his bag up and he walks along with it. And the narrator live on Sky News says, and it looks like the Chancellor has brought us a very green budget. And at that moment, the Chancellor is walking behind a car. And as he emerges from the car, live on Sky News, the briefcase that was red is now green. The one, And this is live news broadcast. It goes from red to green. The next day, the Western world went into lockdown. And I believe that was a go signal. That was a go signal at the levels of echelon that this had been engineered at for their whatever population green control agenda of the technocrats. I cannot see it being any other way. Now, there's no way to have that conversation with anybody without it being decried as a conspiracy or whatever. I don't care about that. I'm just saying that event happened on TV. After that, we went into lockdown. Okay, correlation is not causation. But there is correlation there. And it's another sort of sign of the level of technological influence that's at play here through the medium of technology that all of this is being executed. And uh, like you're saying, it's going to be through technology that the control grid of social status influencing whether you can travel, whether you can purchase, whether you can go in somewhere, go out somewhere. It's all going to come down the grid. So obviously the ones who are in control of owning, profiting from those technologies are in an immensely powerful and, you know, financially well-off position. And every single one of them made a ton of money last year, ton of money. Well, you can take a look at Event 201, which has the words 20 and the word 21 in it. Event in your 20 and 21, you have the Sustainable Development Goals, which are the uh, 17 nuts with the totalitarian dip sauce to be used, you know, which started in 2020, which started in 2030, also 2020. You had the Great Reset, which was already like planned beforehand. That was going to be on the voice, was also in 2020 and that was created. And then we're going to take a look at these players. We're going to take a look at the dad of Bill Gates, who was in the eugenics program and the Planned Parenthood program. So he's that doesn't mean that he's the same, but that's what his dad did, like reducing, you know, the population. Yeah. Then you see him like programming, making billions of dollars. And then suddenly he becomes a philanthropist, a.k.a. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to avoid taxes. 
and invest strategically into healthcare to become the health guru, a so-called philanthropist who then gains billions of dollars right now, fantastic like profit to invest in, and he used it to enhance his influence. He just finished a book about climate change that he just put out there, you know, again, and he's the biggest landowner in America. Now, what is all behind this? There are certain things that impact the sovereignty of a citizen. It's the way how you speak. It's your food supply. It's your information supply. So what you see is, this is what Bill Gates, just one example, with the climate change, you can have a tax on CO2. You have the eternal war, you know, because it can be over, just like COVID in a year or two years. Yeah, it's unseen. He's pushing veganism. Why? I used to be a vegan. I still eat mostly veganism. Why? Because then they can take away the power of the farmers, artificially produce vegan replacement meat in big factories, making Monsanto. So again, you have more of the food supply, etc. So you see that all these elements, you see these weaved in in the sustainable development goals, gender dynamics, education, relationships, fish, food, all these things. These are actually essential elements that people get to get their view of reality, their sovereignty, etc. And these people are incrementally setting out the rules, giving like a nice lipstick on a pig, you know, it, it looks nice. But when you look behind it, you see it are all tools to get incrementally more control over the essential elements in your life yes. and take away freedoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he even said on synthetic meat, this is Bill Gates again, he even said on synthetic meat, oh, you know, you kind of get used to the taste after a while, but, you know, we need to do this for X, Y, Z reason. But again, it's a technical intervention and it's prized by the, in the minds of these people. And it, for me, this, this kind of boils down to, again, the techno-human and the natural human. And for me, the, the, there's a real division coming out here um, where the techno-human not only prizes technical intervention, but would rather take the risks of the technical solution, whereas the natural human would rather take the risks of the natural solution. So this is why I made that comment on side effects earlier, because it's like, well, if the bug has side effects and if the vaccine has side effects, then surely I'm allowed to choose which side effects I subject myself to. And it's a fact that the vaccine will kill some people and it has and it's a fact that the bug will kill some people and it has but what is also a fact is that they don't kill the same people the people that are killed by the vaccine are not the people that are in the risk groups that would have died from the vac from the virus and the people that are in that would die of natural selection are not the ones that the vaccine would kill let me challenge you with this yeah. thing right like why would they purposely kill the people who are on their side like let's say in a disaster scenario yeah, but the point is we have to what we have to what we have to understand here is uh, is that because in the end only the people who would be against it and see through it would survive and aren't those the people that they don't want to survive so that's why well, i'm here's, challenging here's yeah. the interesting thing you see i don't i'm not sure whether there is you know, so I do think that, so as you said, Bill, so Bill's dad was also the lawyer to the Rockefellers, I believe, as well as being involved in eugenics. And so he was, and, and the Rockefellers were the first to, to convert supreme wealth into philanthropy to deal with bad public image. That's why Bill got into philanthropy. He had a terrible image from the Microsoft Monopoly stuff. And he, he he car crashed those interviews and made himself look like the absolute psycho that he is in terms of his inner psychology, not how he presents himself now. Just in put on co- that nice sweater, Bill. It makes you look good and very relatable. And then it's all exactly. fixed. Exactly. <laughs> he got a lot of training because 
he exposed the truth of his sort of social skills when he was in court over the whole Netscape thing and all the rest of it. It was all on show. So he's really had to remedy that. But as you see, he grew up afraid of the population. He had his dad spouting it on him. In a way, I feel sorry for the child that he was to be bombarded by these these kind of people that dehumanized others. The dehumanization of others. These other people shouldn't be breeding. But my children are okay. We're wealthy and producers, so our people are superior and good. And these others, no, they they can be wasteful. Can I challenge you to something which which maybe is a bit crazy? But I mean, I I mean, even if they're on their side, though, they don't value them. What if those people already have transhumanist technology or certain things, and that's why they assess the situation in such a dehumanized way and such a Mm. technology way that certain people they already have some technology, you know, or there's even like certain kind of people who already look a bit advanced, but it's a Faustian deal. They have to give up certain human elements and then they get the power and the glory. Not saying this is, but I see some kind of inhuman way on how they deal with circumstances. And it's so inhuman for me. Well, I agree. And this is, so the Toltecs have something to say about this. So my self-development system, my teachers were Toltec teachers and uh, my, my work is on that. And they have something to say about this because they believe there is a parasite in man and that it is a mind parasite, and that there are markers to spot people who have the parasite. And this kind of inhuman perspective and inhuman conduct and conduct which is harmful to self and the environment is part of that inhumanity. So the interesting thing about a parasite is, is so, so mistletoe is a parasite. Mm. And... The reason a tree feeds mistletoe is that the mistletoe tricks the tree into thinking it's a branch. Mm. And so the tree's like, this is me, I'll give it food. This is me, I'll give it resource. This is me. And this is the same way this mind parasite behaves in humans. And there's some really interesting things that um, it operates under. It does things like it talks to you as you. It tricks people into thinking they're a visitor here on the planet. It usurps even their spirituality to make them believe they're a visitor rather than a native. It even tricks us into referring. It's really common in the West. The parasite is rife in the West. And it is where we refer to indigenous people without referring to ourselves. I mean, how can you not be indigenous? How can you not be native? You're an earthling. This is part of the conduct of the parasite. And what the parasite does is it it has inhuman hungers. It's insatiable. So when we're wondering, why are there people who are screwing children? And how do they recognize each other to form groups? How does this happen? When I was growing up, if somebody found out about somebody did that in Scotland, he'd be tumbled into a boot of a car, taken up in the hills and never seen again. How can they form groups? How can they form these inhuman seeming groups with these inhuman hungers and these inhuman practices that seek to control, denigrate or even destroy humans when they would seem to be a human themselves? And it'd be like, well, if they were under the control of a parasite. So if you look at, so there's really, the National Geographic has addressed very interesting mind control parasites that operate in insects. And it's fascinating Mm -hmm. to see how intelligent the parasites are in controlling the conduct and behavior of the host to achieve the goal of the parasite, which is either to spread the parasite seeds or to destroy the host environment so that the resources the host was using can then be used by the parasite. 
Yeah, because, yeah, this is just like a crazy theory, but, you know, like when you see the people in power and who make decisions, they could have like a Faustian deal or have certain like knowledge or way of treating things that they get up that status hierarchy or they like programmed or with a ritual or, you know, like we're together, et cetera. Like for me, there's a lot of biblical themes that are like happening right now when it comes to, you know, the golden calf, the Tower of Babel, the, the wanting to be immortal, the longing to be transhuman which almost is a sacrifice of being human for living longer and more comfort and more safety, a kind of a Faustian deal. Yeah, but in the end, all of it. Yeah, you're right. It's all a war on creation. I don't want to be subjected to the natural selection of the bug. I don't want to accept the body I was given by nature. I don't want to accept the gender and the sex that nature says I am. I don't want to accept these conditions. And yeah, you're right. It's absolutely, it's the war on heaven by some of them, for those that believe in such a thing. But it really is the war on the creator to say, I don't want to accept the gift and the challenge that you gave me with this life. I want it my way. Even the notion of free will. I was having this conversation the other day with somebody about the notion of free will. And I was like, you know, that is an evil concept. Free will lets kids be fucked. Free will lets people destroy rainforests and eradicate species. That's free will in action. I said, but, however, if you believe that you're made for a purpose, that we're all unique and individual and we're here for a purpose, be it learning, be it growth, it doesn't matter. If you're here for a purpose, then the free will is how you go about exercising your purpose. You are free to choose. How you go about fulfilling your role for which you are cast, you're free to choose because you are in the situation and you're the one that must devise the solution. That's the freedom. But this notion of absolute free will is, again, the war on heaven. It's the war on the story of life, the war on the fact that belongs to something and isn't just random. And it's really in the scientific mind. I actually feel like there's a real wound in the secular mind, in the kind of the mind that believes everything is random. And the wound is, if all of this is random, then I can do what I like to it. It doesn't belong to anyone and it's purposeless. It's an accident. I can do what I like to it. I can destroy it. I can eat it. I can fuck it. I can kill it. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's no, There's nothing going yeah. on here. I nothing can subjectively define reality and you have to agree with, I think. But then on the other hand, when you want to subjectively stand for freedom of make up your own mind, they limit it because you can't think this way. Like, how do you reconcile those two points? Exactly. You know? It's the same I thing when, when that would be like a trans person, like, your view of reality is wrong. I should be able to think what I want to think. But if you then want to think that my reality is not is wrong, that's not okay. Like, what, what is the principle here? Like, you just said that my view of reality is not okay and you want to assert your view. Why, why can't I, I, I say it's more objective, but whatever. But why can't I assert my view? Yeah. So there's, I think there's something going on here. I think there's long-term Leninism at play here. So Leninism was something around the time of Lenin. And the reason Lenin managed to set up gulags and do all sorts of stuff, is it Lenin that did gulags? I can't remember. But Leninism is the term that's used for it. Lenin and Stalin, yeah. Yeah, so Lenin took people with no social status and gave them jobs and gave them status and power. So then when he asked them to do horrible things, they were willing to do it because they would do anything to defend the thing that gave them status and power because otherwise they were the quiet one at the back of the class that no one would speak to and no one would interact with while they were sitting quietly stewing their revenge. And what's happened in the last 30 years is those very people who would have been at the back of the class, socially excluded, possibly struggling to find their way in life, which if we look at humanity as a culture, a petri dish, 
So in a petri dish, that's normal. You're always going to have things on the fringe. You're always going to have exceptions and variants within the gene pool. Not all fruit are fertile, not all fruit flower. That's fine. But what happens is the healthy population apply pressures. They keep the less healthy, less fertile population on the fringe. We have been engineered to say, make way, healthy population. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. You on the fringe. Get up on the podium. You that's infertile in your ideology. Get up on the podium. Give us your voice. Your voice will now be centralized. Yours will be the central voice. So this has happened in our lifetimes. And what's happened now is these people have been given jobs of influence and power. They've risen to establishments of power and influence. And they will do anything to defend the system and the state that has given their position power and authority and status because they know deep down that in the normal healthy culture that they grew up in in school, they wouldn't have that status and power. And just like Lenin, these people have been, this is engineered, I believe, so that when they come called upon to behave in potentially inhuman or inappropriate ways, they will do so without thinking twice about it, to defend the position that they were given because they know where they stand in the natural order of things. When you talk about defend the position that they have been given, and I know you're also involved a lot with it, with like public trust and, and public officers and public servants, it's kind of weird. Like there's almost seems to be no responsibility or owning, you know, bad choices when you're like a public servant because they are like, you know, invulnerable. They keep on being paid by the taxpayer. And then sometimes when they do a bad decision, oh, I had a bad decision as a minister of, uh, of X and then a year later they work for Shell. <laughs> and they make a gazillion dollars or they become a yeah. uh, European Parliament uh, politician there and continue there. So the, the the lower people have to be held accountable even for a little misdeed. But yes. like it seems like public servants, they just can't get away with it. Yes, yes. That's a big issue. That's why I formed the People's Public Trust you know, 11 years ago now. It still is trying to get legs because it requires a certain mass of people to be able to say... I feel like my trust has been broken here by your conduct. And the, the, the record seems to show that you have personally profited from a decision against the well-being of the people. You are accountable. Now, what they're doing at the minute is, at the minute, those positions enjoy a position that we call limited liability. And limited liability happens in companies. Now, there's a really interesting thing about limited liability because it's a position of diminished responsibility. Now, the reason it exists is so that if you make a company and it goes bankrupt, that you don't go bankrupt. That's mm -hmm. fair enough. But when it is used to permit the devastation of the environment, the destruction of species and the harm of human beings, it's not serving its function anymore. Because limited liability is a position of diminished responsibility. And we only give diminished responsibility to children and the mentally unwell. Those are the only people that deserve diminished responsibility, the children and the mentally unwell. Everybody else does not experience diminished responsibility. And what happens by using trust law and breach of trust is that there is no limited liability. They cannot hide behind that dot .ltd in the UK kind of protections. They are fully and personally liable for all the decisions and conduct, but it has to be on the grounds of a broken trust. And that requires enough people to say, I feel like my trust has been broken here. I trusted you with having the well-being of my family and myself as being your priority. And your behavior shows that you sought to line your own pockets to the detriment and harm of the people that you were elected to, or, or hired to, to represent and keep safe. You've broken that trust. You're accountable. You should be done for it.
Can I, can I challenge that? Let's say that public yeah. opinion is socially engineered towards making sure that the people who oppose it are being seen as wrong. So they publicly engineer opinion that, you know, like the trust is on one side, they think they're doing well, they think they're doing okay. And they just manufacture public opinion that it's the minority who says you're violating trust because they're being fed a prescribed narrative yes. where they say they are doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. The yes. other people violating the trust because yes. they're the enemies. Yeah. That's why, that's why we've not managed to take any high profile cases yet. It's for exactly that reason. You know, it's exactly that reason, the level of social, I mean, there, there was a great article I read quite a number of years ago called A Lesson in State Terrorism. And it was all about how the British Empire perfected propaganda and counterinsurgency on in India, in Ireland. So Ireland was the example, the article was really about saying, there was an invading force that managed to paint the picture to the world that they were a peacekeeping force. <laughs> that was a level of, and, and the same is happening for us in terms of the war on terror. You know, we've got an invading force that's managing to paint the propaganda that they're somehow protecting liberties and saving people. I mean, it's incredible the level of bait and switch and turning upside down that the media is account accountable and responsible for. And, you know, because I see all these polls and then they manufacture opinion. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, you have this astroturfing where they create a grass move movement that they like sponsor. And then they create, you know, like a movement that's like, yes, the people want this, but they've been sponsoring it. They've been artificially creating it. And then they yeah. manufacture public opinion. They put it on yeah. social media, real media, maybe in the future, like deep fakes to sabotage character assassin, like certain people. So the means for people to manufacture artificially public opinion has never been bigger. So while there's some ways how people, do they have to connect again to the tribe locally, yeah. uh, disconnect from technology, shut themselves and, and develop parallel societies or whatever, because there's yeah. so much means yes. and tentacles to manipulate public's perception yes. and present it as democracy and majority rule, which yes. end up in like slave mob rule. I'm wondering what your views are about the future of democracy, well, community, liberties. Well, I think there is a small glimmer of hope. I reckon we have a window, personally, we have a window of about 18 months that I think there is a glimmer of hope within that window. I think after that, the resources will have been so milked and drained and the systems will be so in place that it will be, yeah, too late in some respects for um, any sort of real pushback that can be effective in and influence the sort of mainstream media and yes is the answer i i to your to your point about do we need to you know form our local tribal communities or try to kind of duck and hide until it's all over yes yes that's the fallback i'm not willing to give this up without a, a credible fight of using the control group as a mechanism but if it comes to it, then I do think we're on a massive natural selection arc here and that the people that are accepting technological intervention as their authority are going to face massive downstream consequences because, in a way, they're siding against life. Yeah, me personally, I'm willing to live like a hobo and like a prisoner with limited freedoms for like half a year, a year, year and a half and then see uh, what direction it's like going and what the side effects are. But I'm also going to be honest, like I'm, I'm hugely against these experimental therapies and everything that's like going on. 
But I don't know if this would be also for myself sustainable to do this for five years, 10 years, et cetera, when I can't even leave the house. So for me also, that will be like something to stand for and then find a way to fight it. So I'm not at that point. I know some people say, I'm going to get that jab because then I can fight within the system and then I have a bigger voice and then I want to change something. I don't have that opinion, but I know some people that say like, yeah, then we want to reclaim things again when I have more liberty to connect with people, assemble people, get to unions, yeah. et cetera, which I get. I don't adhere to it yet, but I get that they have like, first we're going to give in a little bit and then we can start creating the opposition and rebellion again. What are your views about that? Well, um, for me, I think we are in, you know, so I feel like we are in a time of what I call a pre-Ice Age scatter strategy. So what I mean by that is that before an Ice Age, when, when lots of life felt like there was something weird coming, something big was coming, you would have some people saying, I think we should go this way and do this. And others going, well, I think we should go that way and do this. And we had the freedom to choose who we were going to follow and what strategy we were going to use. We're in such a time that I don't know what is going to be the best solution mm -hmm. for humanity here. And I think we need those who believe this is the way. Do it then. Do it. I don't know what's going to work. I'm doing this. Control groups and native reservations. That's my angle as a fallback position. But because I, I just don't think we know what is required here, we've never faced anything quite like this because this is not really an external threat. This has come from within our species. And as a result of that, it's, it's a tricky one. I know lots of people that are buying land in remote places and they're actually planning their exit strategy to try to go and live in communities in like the west of Africa or on an island somewhere. I know people have already done that. Yeah, I think that everyone should do what they are called to, what they feel is the right thing for them, because somewhere in amongst all of those decisions will be enough of us to get through this extreme. For me personally, I seem to be living close to a village with a big house and I have my own room and then people, you know, have vegetables and the soil and some people give like yoga lessons and I can still use Wi-Fi to connect online. But I want to have a smaller circle that I see regularly. We go swimming, we yeah. go for a hike, etc. And just living in a close community again and living life there because the cities, the speed of life, the increasing choices, it's not making me happy. I want to go back to, you know, how life was before when I still had more control over my life and more freedom. So I know a lot of people are also looking for these going back to nature, more local, less centralized, because that's the movement that's going on right now. Yeah. But there are probably will be more limitations of like traveling and what you can do, et cetera. So the grip to escape it will be bigger and bigger. But I realized there's not a lot of activism right now. And one thing that came up with me is like, what do people still believe in? The family, their gender, their tradition, their nationality. What, what do people still believe in? Yeah. What, what do you still want to stand for that they think like, this is worth the struggle. This is worth the fight. It seems like yeah. there's so little that people still value, gives them structure or stability that yeah. they're just prey to whoever takes the banner and says like, we'll take that over from you and we'll just save you, you know? Yeah. I agree. I mean, I saw on this march in London, I saw divide and rule already in play. So here we were, you know, almost a million people walking through the streets and almost invisibly, according to the main media. <laughs> but what's fascinating is to see the split in that group, in those groups. So as for, you know, I was handing out control group flyers, others were handing out other flyers for other things. And it was amazing to see the resistance and rejection within the group and to see how uh, people were chanting freedom, you know, and going we're reclaiming our freedom, we're winning here. And I would speak to them and I'd be like, well, what are you doing here? It's like, and they were saying, 
well, I just want to be able to go to a festival again. I just want to party again. And they were, and to me, they were the same as the ones who would take the shot just for just to go on holiday again. And there was no sense of a long-term battle. There was no sense of the severity and the enormity of, the, of what we're facing here. There was no cohesion in the group other than the fact they were all standing together to walk along the streets. But other than that, there, there, there was no other deeper ideological confusion there. You just had to look around at the signs being held, and they were all talking about different things. Some were talking about Bill Gates being the devil. Some were talking about Palestine and free Palestine. Some were talking about veganism for freedom. Some were talking about the jab. Some were talking about the lockdowns. And for anybody on the side who's trying to say, why are all these people walking down the street? What's this about? I don't know. I've seen 20 different signs. I've got no idea. You know, and I feel that's more of the sign of what you're talking about. There's a dividing rule has already happened, you know, and in a way there is, I think we have a very slim shot yeah. individuals being willing to come together under a single point to have a rear guard action against seeming madness. And otherwise I'll be heading for a bolt hole as well, because there is nothing in this culture in the way that it is going that has any appeal to me whatsoever other than my wish for um, people to see through the lies and the deceit that they seem to be so yeah there's a lack of cohesion up. literally with the social distancing which is actually a social positioning like lack of cohesion between people like what are you standing for like why you want to get together and i have the same thing like this is just a batshit crazy society of a lot of brainwashed people who are misinformed and they don't see the bigger picture. They're marching toward the cliff. They're like lemmings on a level never seen before. And I want to have nothing to do with that march towards hell that they're like doing right now. Like, yeah, but more yeah. options, more comfort, more safety. You live longer. Not interested at all. I see what the picture is about. Like, doesn't look good. Interested me. Zero. Yeah. But what if you fall ill and you die when you're 85 and I have technology? Not interested at all. It's not just about the length in my life. It's also the quality, how I'm living, yeah. how I'm giving yeah. meaning to my life. And if you're going to take away from that, I don't want that Faustian deal. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with how they're yeah. rebuilding society in a way yeah. that we can rebuild and restart and review things for me, fine. But the way how they're structuring it, I don't want to have nothing to do no, with it. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, as they say, there's a saying in English, which is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Or no intentions. <laughs> yeah, or no. But I mean, in this case, these people are, are professing good intentions. Oh, we mm -hmm. want to take care. We want people to live long. We want this, that, and the other. They're good intentions, but you can't see where you're going with this. If no. people want to check out more about what you do and all the stuff you're involved with, where can they find out more uh, about your platforms? And Okay, so so the control group is in thecontrolgroup.com. That is to try to build up enough names for a credible control group that, uh, that will be formally standing outside of this experiment to be demographic that isn't using the treatments to see how it compares with the demographic, looking at hospitalizations and deaths over the next 15 to 30 years. For my gender work and my one-to-one -one stuff, you can go to my name, which is darrendog.com. And yeah, I've set up an alternate platform to Facebook and stuff like that. But really, you know, it's a free speech platform, but it's really only for people who have a group of purpose. So if you have a group that's having trouble to speak freely, the, the, the purpose of this platform is to solve the problems of the, well, heal the past, solve the problems of the now, build the future. 
if you've got a group that's involved in any of that and you're having tr trouble speaking freely on the existing tech platforms, come to nativereservation.one and you know you can you can set your group up there and it will happily house it there. No algorithms, no ads being bombarded upon you, and certainly no trackers. Last thing when we talked about good intentions, what are some of your intentions for the last year? Or what are some questions that you would ask to my audience like, hey, really check in with this when you think about the coming steps you're going to do these coming 18 months that you talked Ooh. about? Ooh. So we have been, most of us were brought up that when we were showing strong feeling that we were, that we were sent to our rooms or we were sent away and we were told, go away with that feeling. And when it's gone, come back and talk about it. When you're not angry anymore, come back and talk about it. When you're not sad anymore, come back and talk about it. Whereas those feelings, all of them, anger, sadness, frustration, overwhelm, they're all an expression of a desire for the world to be different. And when we are told to take away that very fuel, that very, the fuel of the desire for it to be different, you know, anger, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish that hadn't happened. I wish they weren't doing that. I wish this wasn't happening. I wish you hadn't done that. That sadness, anger, overwhelm, all these things, the desire for the world to be different. We have the ideas to change the world. They're already out there. We have the, the people to change the world. But the people who wish to and are able to change the world are not locking together the fuel for change with their ideas. And they just talk about them. And then they wonder why nobody's listening and acting on them. Learn to speak from and with your charge and feeling for change. Let the feeling enter your body and speak your truth with the feeling, not about it. And if that means that your knees are wobbling and your lips are shaking when you do so, then that is the truth of your capacity and your desire right there and then. And we must accept that level of skill because we didn't give ourselves the practice because when we were kids, we were told to go away with it. I would say, let the charge for change fill your body. Let it fill your voice. Stop talking about it. Let it enter your form and act. Speak with passion and conviction. Speak with the, the fear that you feel. Speak with the concern that you feel. Let it fill you. If your eyes well up when doing so, let people see it because they will feel you and they will respond way more to that than you just staying in the headspace talking about it. That's my invitation. Yeah, man, turn that righteous indignation into something constructive and communicate that lived experience. Then they see that it's not just about what you think, but actually what you feel and you speak from your values. Yeah, they There's feel like humans yeah. feel other humans. Talking about, anyone can do that. Thanks for being a proper-working guest on this podcast. I wish you all the best. And maybe I'll meet you at an online or a real-life reservation and we'll have some deep, meaningful talks, man. Thanks for being Hope a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant 
over.